letting go of a belief uh, that's negative can be very difficult sometimes. For instance, for three years, Jesus tried to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And there were some that were able to let go of whatever beliefs they had had before, like the Samaritan woman at the well and the, the centurion uh, who believes that Jesus can heal his servant at a distance. And they, they get the implication of who Jesus is very quickly. But others struggle more. And the Jewish leaders, for instance, um, they believe that Jesus cannot be the Messiah because the Messiah comes from Bethlehem. And this guy comes from Nazareth. Now, they're experiencing cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you have a, a certain set of beliefs that you sort of, you hold dear and something comes along and contradicts them. And then there's this conflict that clash between these two beliefs. And sometimes people can work through that conflict and embrace the new belief. And sometimes they'll let go of the new belief, no matter how true it is, and cling to what they're used to. And I think, I think that we see the Pharisees rejecting Jesus or struggling in that way. We see it when people who think that he should overthrow Rome because he's Messiah, you know, son of David, they can't reconcile that with love your enemies, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. Um, and I think that their view of who Messiah was, their view of God was too small. Now, cognitive dissonance is seen in the Gospels with the followers of Christ as well, which I find comforting because I experience cognitive dissonance a lot. I think we all do. So it's encouraging that, that his followers struggled with it as well. And, and one of the best examples that has really struck me is when Jesus calms the storm. Remember, he's, just, he's asleep in the boat. The disciples are freaking out. They're like, don't you care that we're going to die? And he just gets up and be still, and the storm is calm. And the response that they have is really interesting. In Luke 8.25, it says, and they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that even commands the winds and the water and they obey him? They're experiencing a kind of cognitive dissonance. Even though they're following him, they believe he's Messiah, this is kind of like a level of power that they hadn't quite yet come to maybe internalize. Now, even in Jesus is um, near the end of his earthly ministry in John 11 we kind of see some cognitive dissonance I think it's there by implication when Jesus says Lazarus is asleep, but I will go wake him do you notice the disciples response. Oh, you know, you should probably let him sleep because then he'll get better more quickly and it's kind of funny like I, I you know you think about it and you go didn't Peter's mother in law get healed by Jesus and didn't she like instantly get up and serve dinner. How are, they, how are they not remembering that? Maybe it's just that Lazarus is so much sicker than she was. She had a fever. He's really sick. Are they struggling to really see that he can apply his power in this circumstance? Now, so we've looked at negative beliefs. We've looked at the struggle to enter into next, the next phase. Um, and how do we see Jesus responding to this sort of limited belief that people have. Well, interestingly, he chooses to reveal himself more fully. So he tells them, yes, Lazarus has died, but for your sake, this is verse 14 and 15, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. And he's gonna express this objective that he's gonna reveal himself more so that they may believe multiple times during this passage. 
up until the very last minute when he's praying to the Father, I thank you, Father, that you hear me so that they may know you have sent me. And we could ask, well, no, don't they believe already? I mean, Peter did declare him Messiah. Jesus did say, blessed are you, Simon, for heaven revealed this to you. Yes, they do, but we all need to grow in our understanding of an infinite God and the implication that trusting that infinite God in our daily lives has. Now, I wanna take this another step further. We all know that expression, good is the enemy of best. You can have good, sound biblical beliefs that nonetheless could limit your understanding of God because of the way you're applying them. I know I do this. Um, and we see this in this passage with two of his dearly loved followers. They're, they're struggling to believe that he can do something that's beyond their, their past experience, that's beyond what they can imagine, and he's asking them to do it in incredibly trying circumstances. And so I like to think of this chapter as a masterclass in faith. He's going to stretch their faith, and these are, these are two women, and I'm going to focus on Martha, but these are two women who have great faith. They love Jesus dearly. First, let's, let's just think about the stretching he's asking of them, why I'm saying it's a masterclass. He asked them to believe for the greatest miracle that anybody has seen, right? So he has raised the dead before, but Jairus' daughter had only been dead for a few hours. The, the widow's son probably had not been dead for a full day because in the hot Galilean sun, you, you bury your dead quickly. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And in the time, it was believed that the soul only stayed with the body for three days and then went to Sheol. So this, there's a finality here that they've never encountered before. Now, he's asking them to believe this unprecedented miracle, not just for themselves, I mean, sorry, not just for a stranger, but for themselves. And I think we all know that the minute we need to believe for ourselves or our loved ones, that takes the challenge up to a whole new level. Now he's also asking them, it gets worse. He also asks them to believe while they're in deep grief. They're in such depth of suffering. We see it reflected in his response. He's seen other people mourn before. And he said to the widow's son, uh, to the widow of Nain, whose son had died, don't weep. But we, we're not told he cries. Maybe internally he was very saddened for her. But here there's an emphasis on the pain he's feeling because he weeps. We're told he is deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And then he's also asking them to believe when they are experiencing deep, deep disappointment because they have not seen him act when they felt they need, needed him to do so. Martha and Mary both come up to him and they use the exact same words. They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's almost as though they've been repeating this to themselves and to each other for the past four days. They're hurting, they feel disappointed. Now, as I said, master class of faith, I am not trying to criticize these women. This, this is amazing what they walk through in this chapter. Um, he's asking them to believe in the midst of incredible trial. When Martha greets Jesus, after she says, if you'd been here, my brother would not be dead. She adds very quickly, I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give you. This is an amazing statement of faith. It's very hard to hold on to our faith in the midst of grief and disappointment, and Mary is hanging on to it. But he's asking her to have a different type of faith, one that believes that he can act right now in this situation and restore her brother to her. 
she's not there yet. That's not where, the place where she's at. When he tells her, your brother will rise again, she's not able to partner with him to believe that he literally means now. Why? Well, again, disappointment could be leading her to try to reason out why Jesus didn't come. I know he's loving. Why would he not come? Maybe, he, maybe God wanted my brother to die. So maybe she has this belief, maybe this is God's will that my brother die. Or maybe she believes God will not transverse or traverse boundaries that he set himself. Somebody goes to Sheol, that's it until the last day. We don't know what the competing belief is. But Jesus is clearly asking her to get past it. He wants her to set it aside and believe him for a miracle today. So he says, your brother will rise again. And I, it's interesting, his words are ambiguous. Like he's leaving her interpretation leaving it open to interpretation. And I think he's doing this purposely. Like the lover of the Song of Solomon, the Lord likes us to arise and go forth and search for the one that our heart loves, to ask continually, to seek continually, to knock continually. I believe he wanted Mary to do that at this moment. And it's interesting because she, she doesn't. She doesn't ask him any questions when he says, your brother will rise again. I mean, you could kind of imagine that if she had any hope that he meant today, she'd be like, wait, what? You mean like at the last day or like today rise again? Can, can I go get my sister? We should go to the tomb now. She's not able to do that, right? Not at this point. She's basically filtering what he's telling her through her belief that it's too late or that it's God's will that he be dead. And then she expresses a biblical truth that echoes Job that I know that my Redeemer lives and I shall see him on the last day. Because she says through this, that she sees this, this biblical truth through the lens of her acceptance of this heartbreaking status quo. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And this is a great statement of faith again. I, I am not criticizing it. Amazing that she can say this in the midst of her pain, but Jesus is still asking her to partner with him for something different right now. She's choosing to believe in a distant miracle in the future, and he wants her to believe for one in the next five minutes. I mean, how tempting is it for us all to respond this way? Right? As I said, this is a masterclass of faith. Do we, when we are challenged with disappointment or with grief, do we press in to seek what his will is to do in given circumstances, or do we just assume it's the status quo? It's very tempting to camp out in familiar regions of faith when we're hurting, when we feel like we haven't seen him move in the past. But with his disciples, I said that when they had limiting faith, he said, I'm glad that this has happened so I can show you who I really am. And his response is the same to Martha. When she says, I know he'll rise on the last day, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. This is one of the most beautiful things he says about himself in the Gospels. And she gets to experience it because she needs to believe for something greater right now. And notice, I love this, that he eagerly follows up this statement with a question. Do you believe this? You sense him longing for her to partner with him at this moment. But she, again, is not quite there. 
So she makes another statement of faith. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I mean, again, this is an amazing statement. Peter was praised when he said this. But it's not what he's asking at this moment. I'm sure he's very pleased with the statement, but it's not quite what he wants. It's a general statement of faith. And he wants a now miracle faith. So she's not able to do it because we know this when he gets to the tomb and he says, roll away the stone. She's like, Lord, no, the odor, it's been four days. She's not, she's not going, your brother will rise on the last day on the resurrection and life, roll away the stone. Oh, she's not there yet. Does it seem unfair that Jesus is asking this of her in the midst of such pain? I don't think he's angry at her. He's not rebuking her. You know, when he was in his hometown in Nazareth, uh, Matthew tells us in chapter 13, verses 57 and 58, that Jesus did not perform many mighty works because there was so much unbelief. He performs one of his greatest miracles for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And I really suspect that it's their faith that made him choose to do this. So really, this master class is it's really high level. If, if Martha were in high school, he wouldn't be asking her to come into a graduate level seminar. And I think he stretches Peter in a similar way. When Peter's walking on the water and then he sinks, Jesus says, why did you doubt? And I got to admit, there are times when I thought, that's pretty harsh, right? Like, come on, he got out of the boat and he walked a bit on water. But Jesus is in a relationship with Peter that is extremely resilient. There's a lot of trust between them. And he knows that Peter is going to take this as formative assessment, I believe. He's going to be like, yeah, you're right. I watched the wind and the waves. I should have kept my eyes on you. So he knows where we're at. He knows what, what stage of our faith we're at. And it's very important that we recognize this that he wants us to proceed in our faith at a pace that is right. He doesn't turn to the other disciples and go, how come you guys doubted? Why didn't you get out of the boat? Come on, everybody out, we're going for a walk. And I sort of picture the disciples going, ah. No, the enemy would love us to compare ourselves to people like Martha and Peter and to create, to adopt a fixed mindset and go, oh, it's no use, I'll never, I'll never get to that place. God is a God of love. And we're told that love always hopes, always trusts. God always perseveres. And I believe that a growth mindset is very much in keeping with his character. I believe it pleases us when we look at master classes of faith and say, hey, Lord, step by step, one day, you're going to lead me there. But I'm, I'm here now, and the next step is the important thing for me. And so I think we can learn from these amazing stories in the Gospels, in the history of the church. I love to read stories of people with radical faith like George Mueller or, or Hudson Taylor, Reese Howell, who have seen God move in incredible ways. And, and there are stories that can move us now. I mean, George Mueller experienced incredible supernatural provision, but you know what? Ruth and Ken have too, and they could tell you stories about that, right? So we can encourage one another. And I think it's one of the ways that we help each other get closer and closer to that master class. And some of us are further along than others. I'm feeling like I'm in high school, but we're, we're on our way, right? And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, encourage one another and build one another up. 
And I said, as I say, we can do this by reminding ourselves of some of the amazing things that God has done in the past and reminding ourselves of what God is doing right now. There are amazing things happening in the body of Christ right now. In the midst of a very painful, dark time, God is moving. There are, there, there's, I, I recently heard a minister talk about 100,000 people that came to Christ in Pakistan. I've heard another minister talk about thousands coming to Christ in tent meetings in California, where they were the hardest hit economically. There's some incredible things happening. So let's, let's encourage each other and stir our faith up, um, but, but to keep that growth mindset that says, okay, Lord, one day I'm getting there. I, I really believe, I mean, I'm, I'm sharing with you a sermon that I need to hear probably more than most people in this room. I grew up with a fixed mindset and the Lord has been gently trying to lead me out of it in many ways, in the real world, like in the real world, in the practical world, like through art and guitar and learning banjo he's been trying to teach me to have a growth mindset but also in my relationship with him and one of the ways he does that is by reminding me of how great he is how lavish his riches how vast his greatness now when martha protests when they when he asked to roll away the stone he says did i not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of god now this is interesting because i've just said that when their face is limited he reveals himself more. But now he's saying, if you believe, I will reveal my glory. And I think this points to a cycle of growth in the spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, and I'm going to read the amplified version because it really amplifies it and unpacks it. Paul tells us this, we all with unveiled faces, continually seeing as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are progressively being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to even more glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And the more we respond with faith and hope, sorry, that ended at spirit, this is me, the more we respond with faith and hope and expectancy, the more I believe he will, he will show his spirit. Moses was, he was in the PhD postdoc level, right? In his faith, I mean, everybody else would stand at their tent and worship, but Moses met with God every day as a man, meets with a friend face to face. And yet because he knew the Lord so well, he knew that there was more. And he cried out, show me your glory. And I love this passage. It's one of my favorite passage because the intimacy of this moment is so beautiful. And the Lord's response is, I will pass all my goodness in front of you. It's almost like he sets a date like, oh, yes, let's meet tomorrow by the rock, right? Let's be intimate. Let me show you myself. Moses knows there is more. God is so abundant. And I ask that we read Psalm 36 today because I love this passage. We can feast on the abundance of his house. We can drink from the river of his delights. With him is the fountain of life. And in his light, we see light. There's that cycle. The more light we get, the more light we can have and so on. Paul prayed that the Ephesians would grasp this truth. May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. May you be filled with all the fullness of God. That's 3, 18 and 19. And then he follows this up rapturously declaring that this is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is work with, at work within us. I want to end with a prayer uh, that is, appears at the end of a book that I love, a little book called Waiting on God by Andrew Murray. And the book is a, 
I think it's 30, 30, 30 readings for 30 days. And on the 15th day, he's talking about waiting on God for his counsel, waiting on God to know what his will is in our circumstances. And he talks about how we can be tempted because we have good sound doctrine, because we know the scriptures well, because we've had amazing experiences of God in the past, we can be tempted to think, well, this is, I've experienced all there is. I've experienced the best of it. I've reached the peak and maybe God won't do any more. And he says, no, 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 no. We don't want to limit God that way. We want to believe him for more. And so he ends that chapter with this prayer and I'm going to pray it over us. I pray that we will seek God, that we will seek to know that there is more stillness of soul to realize God's presence, that we would have more consciousness of our ignorance of what God's great plans may be, more faith in the certainty that God has greater things to show us, more longing that he himself may be revealed in new glory. As Aslan says at the uh, end of the last battle, as he's calling his beloved ones up into Aslan's country, May we all together go further up and further in.